0: Take any questions. <laughs> that was basically my talk. Uh, listen, uh, you know, it's not so much pressure um, that, like you talked about, but there is a tremendous amount of pressure, and it's a bit of a surprise that I'm following a speaker that talked about. autonomous vehicles on the sea of the moons of Jupiter, all right? Now that's a tough act to follow, and so uh, so we'll have to work about the agenda next time. Uh, And let me just say uh, what a uh, pleasure and an honor it is to be back at Woods Hole. And last time we were here, my wife and I and our very young family, I just want to say that it's uh, Wonderful to be back here from a very sentimental standpoint, as much as anything else, uh, because uh, you know, we were students here. Uh, we had moved here from our first sea uh, tour, right? So we graduated. I uh, graduated from the Naval Academy, went to sea for four years, and then came here. At the very first uh, couple years of the joint program, just as it was standing up, and um, and so we came here. We did our our coursework up at MIT, and then uh, all of our research work down here at Woods Hole. And it was just magnificent, the community down here. Uh, it was uh, all, of, you know, lots of uh, bluefish barbecues, uh, windsurfing. Uh, we had our second child here uh, that summer. And uh, we lived in this great house, so a lot of the students just kind of filled in the student quarters, but because we were married and had children, uh, that would have been awkward. And so, uh, <laughs> They uh, found a really terrific house in West Falmouth. It was the house of um, John and Pamela Harris, who the, is a historian who wrote the walking tours of Boston, right? the walking tour of Cambridge, and all of those sorts of things. So he had this magnificent house that overlooked uh, Budget Fay, I think, and then a terrific library. And we spent two summers doing research down here, which is you know, not a bad cake. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, the thing that was Just terrific about here was the quality of the work. And, you know, I just resonate with this uh, the comment that was made in the last presentation about, you know, how real the work is here, right? It is not all in computers, it is not all in labs. You get on a ship, you go to sea, you drop stuff in the ocean, you deal with all of the environmental challenges, sea state storms, all of that stuff. And uh, that makes it, you know, so authentic. In a way that's very unique in our academic institutions, and so you know, I'll come back to that. So, for for all of those reasons, it's just uh, wonderful to be back here at Woods Hole, not just to visit this time, but to be here in a in a meaningful role. I hope, and I look very much forward to getting involved. What I thought I would do is uh, you know, as I thought about what I would say tonight, and I'm also going out to Scripps next week and giving a talk, uh, and uh, it, it uh, causes one to sort of think about something that has captivated my imagination for a while which is you hear this uh, phrase all the time that you know we are a maritime nation right the United States is a maritime nation but uh, you know what does that really mean and some people say well you know that means that uh, we get a lot of our goods you know and our trade from the sea and uh, well that's certainly important and, and it's very true right uh, and you all know those numbers, it's, you know, 99% of uh, the world's goods travel by sea. About 2 thirds of our economy is coupled to the ocean. And so there's an economic uh, argument to be made there. But it goes a lot deeper than that. right? And uh, it really means that uh, you know, our, our history and our strategic direction uh, as a nation have been completely intertwined with the sea since our very beginning. And so I thought, what I'd do here tonight is just go back to the very founding of our nation and step through in great detail, how uh, <laughs> all the way through, culminating in 2019. Okay, so, uh, so yeah, so here we go. Settle down. Um, we can serve dessert as long as it's done in complete silence. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, but it's true. Uh, the founding of our nation is was. Uh, uh, a sort of a kind of a love hate relationship with the sea. You know, George Washington, as he was trying to wrestle the colonies from uh, British colonial rule, spent a good deal of his time as the uh, general of the Continental Army just trying to convince the French to get their fleet at the right place at the right time to seal the deal. Okay? And uh, because the Royal Navy always provided the uh, Royal uh, Army an out, an escape route. And until you could bring all of this together, uh, it, was, uh, it was just not going to happen, right? And so there was the, you know, just uh, what, what the point I'll make, I guess, is that along our history, there are strategic inflection points. This is certainly one, our birth as a nation. And then there are sort of technological and scientific inflection points that happen together. And so, you know, there, is a, there was a political and strategic dimension to convincing the French that this was something that they should be interested in, and then to actually get them to do it, right? And, uh, you know, in fact, a lot of this happened right down the road in Newport, where the, you know, and there was one time where I think Washington thought he had the whole deal sealed. And uh, he came down and it was, it, like many military operations, it was time sensitive, right? There's the, the, the situation, for the, the, the conditions for victory were not going to last forever. And so it was like, hey, we got to get underway and get going. You know, get underway, go down, and it was off of Yorktown. And uh, of course the French you know, wanted to celebrate the arrival of Washington, and so they spent two or three days just sort of having parties and receptions <laughs> and, and, and rendering honors. And in that meantime, you know, the, the, uh, the time had passed, the opportunity had faded, right? And so we, we uh, lost that opportunity. Then of course, you know, relevant to Woods Hole, there is just the ocean itself. And there were so many times where even when everybody was willing, uh, whether it was through uh, just the state of the art at the time or the skill of the uh, mariners at the time they just kind of miscalculated there's time and time again where they were just captured and, and tossed around by a storm that they had no idea was coming right they, they had a good sense of the seasonal types of variations but you know storms kept ca- surprised them all the time and they would just beat them senseless and and uh, you know you raced the fleet right That the operation was over okay uh, and it was much more subtle than that right a captain who uh, failed to sh- sense a shift in the wind or something as you were closing for an engagement it made all the difference in uh, victory or defeat uh, even something as uh, you know well known now as the gulf stream and it was pretty well known back then in fact the first map of the gulf stream done by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, right. So he was uh, very aware of this, but still at that time, you miscalculating it, right? So you're going into this three or four knot headwind, and again, you know, the opportunity passes. You're, you're, you're out sprinted by your opponent. So, you know, at the very birth of our nation, and finally it did all come together, right? DeGrasse and, and, and uh, Lafayette, and everybody did converge on Yorktown and the peninsula there, and, and that's what it happened, right? So, uh, I won't take it year by year, but I do want to <laughs> fast forward to, let's say, uh, uh, 1895, 1895, 1900, right? And for that, you know, those period of time between uh, the, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and 1895, we really just kind of grew as a nation inside the continental bounds of the United States. Uh, but, uh, you know, about the end of the 1800s, 1900s, we had reached the boundaries, and if we were going to continue to grow as a nation, to thrive as a nation, we had to go offshore. All right, and it was a huge strategic inflection point for us as a nation, and uh, it uh, captivated the minds of some great mariners and strategists, uh, guys like Alfred Thayer Mahan, guys like Sims, guys like uh, you know uh, folks of, of that caliber. They did. They said, "Hey, if we're going to go and do this, if we're going to access markets abroad now, we're going to need well, we're going to need to pre- protect that access. We're going to need to protect the sea We're going to need a navy that is up to the task of a global navy now. And we're going to need leadership for that navy that can understand the strategic importance of what they're doing." And so they stood up. Things like the National, uh, the Naval War College, was, uh, right around that time, right uh, up in Newport, to train this cadre of leaders to propel us uh, offshore and become now a global nation. Again, you know, we are also in the immediate aftermath from a from a technological inflection standpoint, uh, immediate aftermath of the um, Industrial Revolution. Right? And so now everything at sea is new. We have new energy sources, new propulsion sources, new, uh, we can go longer, uh, new uh, sensors, new weapons. This, you know, I would say that this kind of gets us through 1945. It goes all the way through the end of World War II, this, this strategic thrust, both uh, political and technological. And so again, you know, coupled very closely with the sea as we start to learn about sonar as we start to invent and learn about radar. Uh, Again, just sort of fundamental oceanography. Uh, You know, we're gonna go out and honor the legacy of Walter Monk, right? And when you think about Walter Monk, you almost have to go back to the Revolutionary War uh, to uh, (laughs) capture the full scope of his contribution. But he was there in World War II and he was doing wave model predictions uh, to support amphibious landings ashore in Normandy and those sorts of things. So again, you know, this deep and uh, meaningful entanglement of ocean science and the United States as a maritime nation as we continue to progress through this phase. And that phase, of course, came to an abrupt end with the end of World War II, kind of the beginning of the Cold War, and also the beginning of the atomic age, okay? And this now gave us another uh, political inflection point, This is when the word superpower was coined. We had this big bipolar system with the United States and the Soviet Union now vying for for power. Uh, You know, another existential situation. And uh, I will tell you what the advent of uh, nuclear power did was it allowed us to go to sea and stay at sea, all right? And it allowed us to go undersea and stay undersea, okay? And so, you know, you know you're, uh, uh, you've got a revolutionary technology when it spurs on all sorts of progress in other adjacent technologies. And this is exactly what the, uh, you know, breaking the atom open, and, you know, the quantum uh, physicists that really got to a productive state They could produce this energy. In fact, you know, for people who, who want to uh, think about what we can do as a nation, as a people, when we put our minds to it. Think about this timeline. <clears throat> uh, they just conceptually figured out vision in 1938, okay? Uh, this is like, you know, the, in the, on paper. They figured they could bust they could some energy out of an atom if they cracked the atom up open. Uh, 1942, Enrico Fermi goes critical in Chicago with that uh, atomic pile underneath the uh, stadium. Okay, so that's a mere four years later, uh, 1954. Right, a mere 12 years out of that. After that, they launch a submarine whose entire propulsion and energy system is based on that technology. Right, we can't get the paperwork together in 12 years uh, to do something that we completely understand right now. Right, I mean that's just kind of you know the the. Uh, the enthusiasm and optimism of that era was remarkable, and so uh, and so it was. And so, you know, we were now denizens of the deep, right? We could go underwater and we could stay underwater. We could go to sea and we could stay at sea. And so, and oh, by the way, very strategically important politically as well, because as you know, uh, the Soviets kind of got stole a march on us in space, right? So. There was Sputnik and their space program. They got the first guy in orbit and all that sort of thing. In many ways, our response was at sea. Right, we were able to respond with this nuclear navy that was able to say, "Hey, we're still in this, and we have got your number at sea." And so, within just a few years of being launched, Nautilus very publicly shows up underneath the, at the North Pole. Uh, you know, we have submarines. Uh, doing uh, circumnavigating the globe submerged very popular okay but you know uh, a- as was pointed out uh, it, it, the competition was on right and so we had to understand the ocean better than our competitors and so now you start to see a renaissance in ocean acoustics oceanography commercial navigation missile technology uh, Environmental technology, uh, we, we have to split the water molecule apart, breathe the oxygen, and throw the uh, hydrogen away, right? So electrolysis. All of these types of things start to happen in this super uh, advanced and, and rapidly uh, advancing phase. And oh, by the way, you know that led to us uh, winning the Cold War essentially without a shot. And so, uh, and it wasn't just under the sea, right? In 19, so in 54, we launched Nautilus, first nuclear nuclear-powered warship in 50, in 61, we launched the Enterprise, right? Nuclear powered aircraft carrier, eight reactors on it. When she launched, the most powerful power plant in the world was on board that ship. It was the biggest ship in the world. And when she left Newport News Shipbuilding, You know, the nation was so enthralled with her that they lined the banks of the James River, you know, dozens of people deep, just to watch this marvel of technology steam out to sea, okay? So that was 1961. One of her first jobs was to go on station for the Cuban Missile Crisis, all right? One of my first jobs when I became the Director of Naval Reactors was to give the speech 51 years later that finally inactivated the uh, USS Enterprise. All right, so it shows the power of this technology. And throughout that time, all of the changing, the world had changed so many times over, uh, enterprise was able to stay relevant to those, all of the challenges that, that faced her. So, 1989, this era of our heavily fueled by a strategic challenge, that was met in very meaningful ways by us understanding the ocean and ocean sciences, right? This is what I think it means to be a maritime nation. That our our future, our prosperity, our way of life is coupled with our understanding of the sea. Okay? After the wall came down, the Cold War has ended, eighty-nine ninety-one, we kind of strategically I would say drifted for a little while, right? We might have missed an opportunity. I think history will show that we kind of missed an opportunity uh, there to really make some things happen. Um, But the world advanced tremendously commercially and particularly at sea. In that period of time, from 1990 to now, the density of the traffic on the ocean increased by 400%. Right? which is a remarkable figure when you think we've been going to sea for 10,000 years or so before that. A four times increase in the last you know, 25, 30 years is remarkable. We've got a network of uh, undersea cables now on which rides 99% of the internet traffic. Right? If that's disrupted, we can reconstitute about 3% uh, in satellites and stuff. So it's really dependent uh, on that, those undersea cables. Uh, it's not just cables on the seafloor, right? There's an entire uh, seabed infrastructure arising that allows us to get at natural resources and a number of different things. Um, the uh, aquaculture, the amount of food that we get from the sea, more than 10 times increase in that same period of time, right? So both protein and carbohydrates. And uh, if you want to think about other things, uh, the, the, the Arctic ice cap, started to shrink, right? We're losing about the area of the state of uh, Rhode Island each year in terms of ice. And uh, smaller than it's ever been in any of our lifetimes, smaller than it's ever been since we started measuring. And so very, very dynamic at sea. Mega cities, those cities whose population are 100 million or more. uh, There's about 30 or so of them right now, 31. Uh, Many, many of them near the sea. Right? And, and again, you know, sort of increasing the stress in the maritime environment. And there's just more coming. Right, They project in the next 25 years, about 50 of these mega cities will be around. Again, almost all of them near the sea. So you can see that, you know, the challenges before us in terms of uh, understanding the impact of the ocean environment and what it means for us as a people. And of course, as was talked about already, uh, this challenge of climate change transcends even national boundaries, does it? doesn't it? And mm-hmm. right? so I started off today at this uh, innovation e- uh, expo for a company called Exelon, it's, uh, it's a utility company. And one of the speakers was uh, Bill Nye, right? The science guy? Yeah. And uh, he's completely crazy. Uh, but uh, uh, He's a super entertaining uh, speaker. And he had this picture of uh, basically Saturn, taken by you know the space vehicle that just passed Saturn, right? So it was a remarkable picture. But he said, so you know the rings of Saturn and all of that were uh, stunning. But he said, hey, the other thing is he probably didn't notice it, but Earth is in this picture, right? And you kind of had to look past the rings of Saturn to see that one of the hundreds of dots in space <laughs> uh, in the background of this picture was Earth. And he said, you know, he made an excellent point that uh, you know there is no cavalry coming to save us from this. Right? We have got to solve this climate problem ourselves, right? And you can, you know, I'm speaking to the converted here. I'm way behind in my reading in this regard, but you do get a sense of just the physics, you know, of the momentum building that is going to if we don't act urgently and, uh, and meaningfully, it's going to be hard to overcome this, right? We're not gonna pull an all-nighter uh, you know, in nine years and, and, and reverse these trends. We've gotta get after them now. So that's a huge challenge that defines our way going forward. Uh, we are back in great power competition in many ways, right? And uh, if you think about, just read the news, many of these challenges manifest themselves in the maritime right, the Straits of Hormuz, okay. Uh, If you think about how we do move goods around the world that go through these choke points, if you overlay the uh, Council on Foreign Relations hot spots in the world, they're almost all right over the top of those choke points, right, Uh, South China Sea, Babu Mendeb, uh, you know, you name it, right, Uh, uh, Straits of Malacca, Straits of Hormuz, and so, uh, You know, that's where your Navy is right now. That's why your Navy is forward is because that's where the challenge and and our national interests are. But this is a tremendous challenge going forward. You know, I hope I have painted the picture that we have been successful as a nation uh, to date in many ways because we have well, well enough understood the ocean environment that surrounds us, okay? It is important for the science, it's important for our prosperity, it's important for our strategic uh, sustenance as a nation. Okay, The challenge is still there, if not even more urgently. And so why is it great to be back at Woods Hole right now? Because I think that places like Woods Hole uniquely must lead us forward as a nation now. And we've got to be, I would say, very bold about taking our own side in this fight. There are there is nobody else. There there are very very few people who can do this. And so it's you know, it transcends opportunity and moves into the space of obligation. I think we have an obligation as an institution to lead out in this space. So we need to be very vocal about this. We need to be very creative, energetic because I think if we do not get this right, uh, it's gonna happen quicker than we think. This is not something that's gonna manifest itself in our great-great-great-grandchildren's uh, lives. This is something that's gonna manifest itself in our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. And we'll be around to watch it, right? And they're gonna look back at us and say, what'd you guys do, you know? So uh, again, wonderful to be back at Woods Hole for all of those reasons, but most important, because this is a bright star in the constellation of places that can lead us forward as a nation in our continuing superiority and understanding the ocean. Thank you very much.
1: Before I, work, that yeah, works. Okay. First of all, a compliment, a comment, and then a question. I'm the slowest kid in class,
0: but I'm detecting a pattern.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm an ex-Naval officer, and I honor the fact that you made it to be Chief of Naval Operations those of you not in the Navy, he's much more modest than he should be because you don't get to be CNO without having done phenomenal stuff along the way. So I honor and respect you weren't my boss. It was younger people, but it was great. So thank you for being a CNO. I found I've known a lot of CNOs, and they're very humble. Humility is what uh, they portray when they have excellence. So you don't have to. Exp- I can talk about it. You can't. I know that. Yes. Two questions. One's a geostrategic comment or re- question, and the second one is to key on what you said at the end. I spent a lot of time in the South China Sea, in the Paracels and the Scarborough Shills. I've been there more times than probably most people. Uh, I have spent a lot of time in Beijing. My friends in Beijing uh, now are looking at the South China Sea as maybe something that's an extension of their life, including the Scarborough, the Paracels, and so forth. Your comments on should we let them? How do we handle that? That's, that's, that's the geopolitical. The second one is, I wasn't going to ask this question to you ended it, which is the climate crisis and its impact on our children and our grandchildren is being so profound. It's beyond the South China Sea issue. So could you comment on what do you think about South China Sea? but more importantly, obviously, is the uh, the existential threat that you've talked about and said, what do we do about our grandkids um, beyond that, okay? And thank you for thank you. your service, and I am one of yours.
0: Well, uh, yeah, uh, two super easy questions. Um, <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, with respect to the South China Sea, uh, I agree with you. That uh, I've spent a fair amount of time talking to my counterparts and senior leaders in uh, China myself, and I've, I'm convinced that they do see the South China Sea as their their place. Okay, and uh, so I would always caution our our folks who are in the South China Sea and are going to stay in the South China Sea uh, that uh, they need to be on guard because uh, when. We steam through the South China Sea because we interpret those waters as does the United Nations, as international waters. In that. and So we go through, and in fact, where there are several uh, excessive maritime claims in the South China Sea and Southeast Asia in general, uh, as part of our global program to challenge excessive maritime claims by everybody, including our allies and such, uh, we do these uh, transits through those those uh, waters to call they're called freedom of navigation operations and it's just to show that uh, hey, we interpret it as the United Nations does and we're going to be there to show you that uh, we're going to operate consistent with those rules. Uh, I said, we think that that's just international waters. for th- From their standpoint, I've become convinced it would be like if they put a, a, a Lu Yang destroyer in the Chesapeake Bay. right, And uh, how would we react if something like that happened? We have to be ready for that type of a reaction uh, in the South China Sea. And that goes all the way down to the commanding officer of that particular ship. He may just, you know, he or she may just eat, I think, for the Chinese. Uh, this may feel sporty that day right, and go off script, and you've got to be ready for all of that. Uh, but we can't leave there. Right? And we've been consistently there at least for the last 70 years. And that's because we have very uh, critical national interests there. Uh, about a third of the world's trade goes through the South China Sea, including a lot of ours, right? And so uh, we can't abandon that. And if we think about our commitment to kind of global stability and our partners and allies, uh, you know, they need our leadership there so that they can stand up and, and advocate for their uh, rights, I guess, in international waters, and, and their prosperity uh, for free trade. And so so we can't leave that, right? And so we've got to figure that out. That's one of the areas where there's very clear disagreement. And so we're going to have to just figure out ways to minimize the risk, the operational and tactical risk, uh, while we work through this strategic disagreement. Okay? And there are a lot of operational arrangements that we have with the People's Liberation Army Navy, such that we don't have a local miscalculation that uh, would result in some kind of an incident that would quickly escalate to strategic, right? So we, we want to continue to advocate that we strengthen those agreements and follow them, okay? So that's that's the South China Sea question. With the climate question, I mean, uh, it's just uh, you know becoming increasingly clear and, uh, Uh, it's remarkable that we still kind of have the discussion about, you know, is this happening? Um, And uh, because the evidence and the data is just so clear. Uh, And even if you wanted to put uh, causality aside, it just seems that as, you know, a people that wants to continue to live on this planet, we would be well advised to, to move forward in ways that are much more sustainable and friendly and less harmful to the planet, and oh, by the way, this technology, you know, the technological inflection point that uh, we now have ongoing is, you know, we, we went through the Industrial Revolution then the atomic age, we're now in the information age. And so we've got autonomous vehicles, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got new sources of energy. They just gave the Nobel Prize to the team that built the lithium ion battery, right? Uh, we've got uh, machine learning. Right? So we have all of these things uh, happening uh, around us. And, and you know, so, so again, we see this, this three-strand rope uh, forming between new technology, new strategic challenge, and the ocean, right? and we've got to get after that. Um, this, uh, so, so put causality aside for climate change, we just as a responsible people should be leading our way forward uh, in ways that are much more sustainable and, and less harmful. We've got the technology to do it, and uh, we just gotta go, and you, and you can, I think, do it commercially, you can prosper and make money that way as well. So we just have to, to go and do it. it you know, I took a question in a, uh, a panel uh, just earlier this week, and they called it a challenge, and they said, well, don't you think it's a threat? I think it's really, you know, in my mind, a threat is something that has an intellect that's after me. Right? if something is hunting me down as a threat, uh, this seems to be bigger than a threat. Right, it's it, the worst horror movies are those, those things that move through the movie with almost no intellect. It's just you, this immovable thing that just keeps on going and going and going. That's kind of the sense I'm getting uh, with this, uh, this climate science. So. Okay. No,
1: Admiral, one more, Let's do one okay.
0: more question.
1: Okay. Um, two part question. A. Um What about the islands they're creating in the South China Sea and are they, um, you know, politically, uh, (laughs) are they new creations or are they China? And number two is Taiwan. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, what about (laughs) Taiwan? That's a a wide open palette. Uh, Well, uh, with respect to the... uh, the reclaimed features of the South China Sea. Um, really, uh, as a nation, it's a matter for the international courts, right, uh, to interpret what those are, and so uh, that's that's our position. We're not we don't make claims on uh, you know the interpretation. We'll we'll argue our side in court, but it's the international courts that have to decide the well not only those features that are new but also those features that have been there a long time, but are you know, have been contested in terms of sovereignty for a long time as well. And so so uh, and we've had some fits and starts in that area recently, right, uh, where uh, the international court recently ruled in favor of the Philippines. And uh, you know, this was their time to go, and we've had some stutter steps uh, moving forward and, and really seizing the opportunity uh, that that uh, decision teed up for us. Uh, with respect to Taiwan, um, you know, I think we can all kind of talk about uh, uh, Taiwan, you know, it, it, and it wouldn't be any more or less legitimate than anything I have to say. Uh, you know, we continue to have relations governed by the Taiwan Relations Act and a couple of other communiques. Uh, this uh, you know, allows us to support Taiwan in ways that help them defend themselves. And so, uh, you know, we'll continue down that road. So. But it's a, it's a big strategic uh, question for sure. So, would you
1: smack them if they came
0: after Taiwan? Would I smack them if they came after Taiwan? I think what we would rather do is make it really clear that that's a dead end for them. Right? So I can thank ask you. One more question. I'm happy to take one more okay, question. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Instead of landing at Woods Hole tonight, uh, you just flew in to the Bragan in the
1: South China Sea. And at 1400, you've got to talk to certain members of the crew about what they're doing. I mean, what, what, what was your message
0: when you did all these visits and ships, whatever, uh, to those who are serving us in the Navy now? Right. Well, I will echo the uh, message from the first presentation, which is, if any of you can get to sea on a US Navy warship and spend some time out there, do it right get out there and I think that you will be stunned by the professionalism the focus the capability the intelligence and uh, the character of these many women that are out there on these warships if you think about a carrier strike group uh, that is about 7,000 sailors Afloat on a steel archipelago for seven months of their life seven months of their year uh, During their deployment. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because they love one another and they love their country and they make tremendous sacrifices to do that and so when I had the chance to uh, Talk to them directly. I just wanted to make sure that uh, they understood that I knew that that I had tremendous amount of respect for their choices You know, your United States Navy right now, by every measure of human performance, is the most talented Navy that we've ever had in our history. Whether that's grades in school, exams, physical fitness, they look better, you know, they're handsomer and cuter, they're they're, they're super clever and charming. Uh, They are really stunning people. They had a lot of choices in their life when they uh, got out of school. And uh, they chose to raise their right hand and make a really serious commitment to support and defend the Constitution at great sacrifice. And so I always make sure that they knew that I respected that a tremendous amount. And then I always said, "Hey, listen, you know, you are here for an amazingly important mission to our nation. Uh, the things that you are doing are critical to our national security. You know, be vigilant. Don't let anybody uh, surprise you. And." Uh, you know, do good work, come back stronger than you left, and we'll be able to see you come back home. Is that okay? All right. Thank you.
1: Admiral Richardson, thank you so much for that. Uh, I had
0: the privilege to go to your retirement, uh, change of command, and um, You spoke about three things. You spoke about 37 years of career in the Navy. Uh, You spoke about your wife and your family, and you spoke about your faith. And um, you did so eloquently on all three topics, and that resonated with me very much. Um, You are clearly a person of character and integrity, and uh, we're
1: thrilled to have you as part of our team. So welcome, and thank you. (laughs) I think you always.